1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network Women's History Channel. I'm your host Nicole Bourbonnet, an Associate Professor of International History and Politics at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. And I'm joined today by Dr. Jade Sasser, an Associate Professor of Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of California, Riverside. Dr. Sasser is author of the book On Infertile Ground, Population Control and Women's Rights in the Era of Climate Change, published by New York University Press in 2018. The book explores the resurgence of narratives of global population crisis in the context of contemporary climate change activism. She examines how private donors, NGO program managers, scientists, and youth advocates present investing in international family planning policy as a win-win approach, which would reduce the impact of population growth on the environment while also providing for women's empowerment. As the book illustrates, this equation oversimplifies the issue of climate change, glosses over the complicated history of international population control, and casts girls in the Global South as sexual stewards, responsible not only for their own lives, but for the fate of the world. Jade, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So I wanted to start by personally thanking you for writing this book. Um, (laughs) As someone who's located in international Geneva, uh, this kind of language is something I've seen all over uh, the development, environmentalist, and women's rights circles here. Uh, But also in my classroom with students, Uh, as you mentioned, uh, this is something that also is really popular among youth advocates. Uh, And it's something that's always made me kind of uncomfortable and a bit suspicious uh, as someone who studies the history of international family planning and and population control. And I think the book does a really wonderful job of breaking down this discourse and showing us where it comes from and and what some of the problems may be.
0: Well, thank you. Um, I appreciate that. And really, my interest in writing this book grew out of those same kinds of discomfort. I have a background in international development. I worked uh, in the arena of international public health, uh, specifically sexual and reproductive health and rights. I worked for a family planning organization. Um, I was a Peace Corps volunteer. So I've had these different experiences around international development, and more recently with hearing Uh, how young people were entering these spaces with these discourses that were really simplistic um, and that collapsed a lot of really complicated issues into narrow, you know, sort of empowerment centered narratives that really didn't embrace any of the complexity or the historical nuance. And so I was really concerned and frustrated at the same time. And that's what led me to write the book.
1: Right. And I I thought it was interesting kind of imagining you in these spaces. I mean, you go to meetings, conferences, workshops run by different NGOs and advocates. And you're also almost engaging in advocacy yourself, right? Going to youth uh, Congress with youth advocates, for example. And as I was reading the book, I was thinking how kind of strange that must have been at times. Uh, You talk about in the book how you'd already sworn your allegiance to political ecology frameworks. Uh, So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what it was like, you know, how you navigated these spaces as a researcher, but also as an individual with your own kind of viewpoint on these issues?
0: Well, I I entered the spaces as a researcher, first and foremost, as a person who wanted to learn more about um, why young environmental advocates were entering the reproductive health space, Um, what they were doing there, what brought them there, how they understood that space, Uh, to exist alongside of these longer uh, narratives calling for population control. Because the thing about it is, in any space where environmentalists are, when you talk about reproduction issues, the conversation is always, always influenced by population control ideas, by neo-Malthusianism. And um, as I was reading more about neo-Malthusian discourses uh, in my classroom in grad school and then going into these spaces to do research, there was this fundamental disconnect in which young activists really, really saw themselves as doing work that is empowering to women, that is feminist, um, that is progressive, that is social justice oriented. And they seemed to have no sense of historical context around population control how coercive it has been uh, to women of color and low-income women around the world, the impacts it has had on, um, on racialized communities in the United States. And I thought to myself, I need to enter this space as someone who has strong ideas and feelings, but who is ready and willing to learn more. And to be wrong. And that's the thing I think about research. Um, even if we feel that we have a strong opinion about something or are very well informed about something before going into the research space, the whole point of research is to learn more. And to be a good researcher, I feel we have to be open, willing, and ready to be proven wrong. And so, yes. I was already a political ecologist. I was very critical of population control narratives or any demographic narrative around environmental change. I was already sympathetic to reproductive justice, but I was also ready and willing uh, to learn something different. And instead everything that I learned solidified (laughs) my existing views
1: (laughs) but I mean you do do a great job of showing some of the nuances and some of for example the advocates themselves some of their own um you know they are not always they're sometimes a bit uncomfortable as well with the language or unsure of how to use it so we do see a bit of the the complexity um although this is obviously lost in some of the headlines right in the or or some of the popular articles um early in the book you you challenge the reader to type climate change and birth control into google and so i did that this morning just out of curiosity wondering what i would get and the first three articles I got I'll just give you the headlines because they perfectly illustrated exactly what you were saying so (laughs) the first from Global Citizen said why birth control could be the best weapon against climate change so kind of captures that apocalyptic uh, war kind of narrative Mm -hmm. there was one from Women Deliver called Family Planning a win-win for women in climate change so that that language exactly and then one from Science Daily titled climate change concerns have largely ignored role of access to effective contraception. So again, this claim that this is new, right? This is a new idea. Uh, But as you show in the book, it's, it's quite old, right? This this idea of linking contraception to population. So can you maybe tell us just briefly a little bit of background of the origins of this idea of uh, population growth as being the key environmental problem and family planning being the solution uh, and maybe how you see that evolving over time.
0: Sure. So the initial origins uh, date back a couple hundred years to a guy named Thomas Robert Malthus. Um Malthus was a political economy economist, excuse me, um, and also a religious uh, official in Britain. And he was really concerned with the welfare state. There was a set of laws known as the British Poor Laws in which the British government distributed food aid uh, to the poor. And he was really concerned. He felt that that was a dangerous, destructive policy because that food aid, um, A, was not deserved by the poor, and B, that those resources could better be allocated among other segments of the population. He created, he did a set of studies to understand uh, or to characterize the relationship between the poor population growth and food resources. Um, and what he developed was this idea, this concept of arithmetic growth, which says that human beings multiply at a rate that far outpaces the earth's capacity to keep up by providing the food resources that we need, that the earth can never create um, or provide the amount of food needed at the rate um, at which human beings multiply. And he argued that this is fundamental natural law, that there's nothing social about it, it's completely natural and biological. And his argument was that if human beings exceed the planet's capacity to sustain us through our food supply, that we would naturally die out of famine. Um, And so his argument, known as the Malthusian argument, um, is that the best antidote to that uh, human population-driven famine is population control. Now, Malthus was not in favor of what he saw as unnatural methods of control, so he didn't advocate, you know, birth control. I mean, we didn't have pharmaceutical birth control at that time. He was writing in the late 1700s. But he advocated, uh, you know, kind of moral restrictions on sex. Um, over the years since that time, those ideas have shifted changed, evolved. In the United States, um, probably the biggest and best known advocate of Malthusian ideas is a Stanford biologist by the name of Paul Ehrlich. He wrote the book, The Population Bomb, which came out in 1968. In that book, he uh, likened human population growth to a nuclear bomb in terms of the damaging, destructive effects that it would have on uh, human societies. Um, Like Malthus, he said that population was growing at a rate that was unsustainable, that the Earth couldn't keep up in terms of providing food supplies. But he also extended those ideas to talk about clean air, clean water, um, and other resources that we need to survive. So his ideas are known as Neo-Malthusian, or newer or updated Uh, Malthusian arguments. Um, Ehrlich's book and his ideas were very, very popular throughout the 1970s. He galvanized a youth movement known as Zero Population Growth. It was a popular movement on college campuses. There were thousands of students uh, that were involved in that movement, and their arguments were primarily around um, self-managed reproductive responsibility Um, Those students felt that the best ways for them to be environmentalists included um, managing and limiting their reproduction. And in part, those ideas at the time were innovative because they were in favor of contraceptive access. They were in favor of access to abortion. They were in favor of free love. Um, They were strong advocates and proponents of delinking sex from reproduction, so arguing and advocating for women's rights uh, in particular to have sex without having to become pregnant and have babies. Um, Again, all these sort of progressive seeming ideas, but at the same time you had stringent population control policies that had been initiated in the United States, many, many decades prior. But at at that time in particular, you had black women, uh, Latina women, and Native American women who were being um, sterilized without their knowledge or without their consent um, on the basis of these kinds of neo-Malthusian arguments. So, you know, and then from there, the Neo-Malthusian perspective really fell out of favor um, because feminist activists came to the forefront and exposed the abuses um, of population control. Um, coercive sterilization really came into popular media, came into the, the limelight, and people really got to see what happened uh, when people, when policies were developed that were based on Neo-Malthusian claims why has it come back now? Well, at the turn of the millennium, the attention to climate change really increased significantly. And the thing about it is that people who are in the family planning sector of development had been looking for some time for a way to reposition international family planning as non-controversial, as non-coercive, and as separate and distinct from population control. So those kinds of efforts had never stopped, but they really found new ground um, with the attention to climate change, in part because climate change has really always been a young person's issue more than any other. Younger generations have always cared more about climate change from an activist perspective. There's been a groundswell of support among youth from the beginning, Um, Young people see climate change as a social justice issue, see reproductive health as a social justice issue, are concerned with social justice more broadly. And so development actors really began to look for links between the two, climate change, reproduction, um, and how to link them through social justice. And so that's what the book really talks about, that history of how those narratives came together together how this new set of languages is central um, to approaches today and how young people are driving this narrative forward around how you can address climate change and population through a social justice approach. Right, I know that and, was a long answer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it's good though. It really, I mean, it's a big, it's a long history, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, kind of also one of the the connecting links here is the role of science, right? So the way that there are, these advocates are also actively seeking out scientific theories, scientific data that can support this connection being drawn uh, between reproduction and environment yeah, and I think this was really well illustrated by your discussion of carrying capacity, uh, how kind of how co- that concept arose and why it it continues to to um, have this reach uh, in advocacy, even though there's been critiques of it kind of within scientific communities. So can you maybe talk a bit about carrying capacity, where it came from and and how it's become this this narrative?
0: Yeah, carrying capacity. Uh, started with um, with trying to find estimates for how much ships <laughs> could carry. Literally, it referred to the tonnage um, in storage areas of ships. Um, later, environmental theorists who were concerned with how many animals could graze on particular plots of land began to take up carrying capacity, although Leopold started to... Um, take some of those ideas around carrying capacity and talk about rangelands. And then other people like Paul Ehrlich and others who were writing around the same time as him, Garrett Hardin, in particular, a zoologist from UC Santa Barbara, wrote quite a bit about carrying capacity too. Carrying capacity is this concept that says that you can find a particular number or develop formulas that will find a particular number that will definitively tell you what the maximum capacity is for a particular area of land um, to produce the food needed to sustain X number of living beings on that land. And carrying capacity has been a central preoccupation of environmentalists who are concerned about population size, and growth population control, um, there's been a search for a definitive answer to this question, how many people can planet Earth sustain, how many people can different regions of the Earth sustain, and that number has never been found. Why? Because carrying capacity is its, it's a search for a biological answer to social questions, essentially. Those social questions are about the distribution and provision of resources, including food, among others. Those questions are also about human capacity to maximize um, or minimize uh, what land can do. So, for example, the Green Revolution, the agricultural revolution in the 70s and 80s really maximized um, the land output, um, in terms of the ability to grow food relative to previous decades. Um, and then also what carrying capacity does not and cannot get at is questions of gross inequality between people in different regions, different areas, different countries, um, and even within regions, areas, and communities of the world. So, for example, uh, the argument around famine is always this question of there are too many people, there's not enough food, people will um, starve and die out. But in places where famines have occurred, and this is Mike Davis's work in late Victorian holocausts, Places where famines occur are places in which you have a maldistribution of food resources rather than simply too many people for the amount of food available. I do want to say about science more recently that um, although it's not about carrying capacity, there are still ways that scientists are looking for answers around how to forecast um, the Earth's resources and the number of people who will be on the Earth and the impact that one has on the other. So today, especially in the midst of climate change, we have these big temperature forecasts. Um, We have these projections of what greenhouse gas emissions will be in the future. And when those get juxtaposed with population projections, and population projections have been done for decades now. It looks frightening, it looks jarring because both kind of have these ski slope um, curves, right? In which, compared to the long historical past, you see the growth of greenhouse gas emissions going up sharply. Um, you see Uh, global temperature change going up sharply, you see human numbers going up sharply. And so just looking at these images, it's easy to be lured into this really seductive, really narrow narrative that says clearly this number of people on the planet is driving this temperature increase or is driving these greenhouse gas emissions. But again, these kinds of scientific models are not complex enough because they don't take into account the gross inequalities in human behavior. The number of people on the planet does not drive, for example, how corporations behave. And we know that the vast majority of greenhouse gas emissions worldwide have been driven by corporate-led fossil fuel extraction, right? Um, The number of people of planet also don't drive how militaries behave. And militaries in particular are also outsized actors when it comes to not just emitting fossil fuels, but engaging in the kinds of actions to secure more land and more spaces where fossil fuels can then be mined and extracted in the future. Um, And then also the number of people on the planet don't represent what government's in terms of policy making and that plays a tremendous role um, in in actions that lead to climate change. So, again, that search for simple scientific answers on population and environment or, more recently, population and climate, um, it it can be dangerous when it obscures complex social forces um, and it often... Obscures those complex social forces.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you talk about how just the visual mapping of these things alongside each other can really reinforce this link, right? Without, without people necessarily going the next step to think a little bit more critically, and and you can see this come to play in the portrayal of uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, right, as this, as this um, uh, population growth hotspot. And then that's kind of visualized into a future, uh, you know, huge emitter, even though right now the, the emission rates are very low. And you talk about how this is how this anticipatory politics, you know, it's about the future, but it can also drive the way policies are framed in the present.
0: Well, I think the future totally drives um, policy advocacy now, because the thing about it is, at least for the policy advocacy that I was studying in that book, it's all about what are the futures we anticipate are coming based on the way that we're behaving now and how can we change that in the direction that we want it to go in, right? So I so in this book, one of the things that I did is I followed youth advocates. Um, they went to trainings to train them on how to make the link between population growth and climate change or other environmental changes. Um, and then they were also trained in how to go and advocate Uh, for family planning as a solution uh, to population growth as a problem. Um, And then they would go and advocate to members of Congress uh, and other lawmakers. And so in their advocacy, they were already looking at a future that they saw as having too many people on it and a future that was too warm, right? That was too ravaged or damaged by climate change. Um, And that the cause for the latter was the former, too many people. So they, starting from that perspective, that this is the future that is coming, their advocacy was around how do we prevent that future? And the best way to do it, um, from their perspective, was to advocate for universal access to contraception um, and to do it through an environmentalist narrative. The environmentalist narrative was not necessarily the first narrative that many of these youth would have chosen, but uh, in part because of the training that they received, they understood that simply advocating for women's rights, sexual and reproductive health, women's empowerment would not necessarily be a successful approach in and of itself, Um, that an environmentalist approach would be more successful.
1: Right, and and as you say, they are, they're using this language of social justice and reproductive justice, but there are some kind of underlying tensions in using that language. Uh, it doesn't exactly kind of fit together. So can you maybe describe some of the problems of using a, a language of social or reproductive justice to make this link between population and uh, family planning?
0: Well, the problem with using reproductive justice is that reproductive justice, as a movement, is completely counter to every single thing <laughs> that, <laughs> that these young people are doing. Um, so, reproductive justice is a social movement that began in 1994 with a group of American women of color activists. Um, they went to Cairo. They went to that the conference um, on on population and development. And they saw how the framings around population control and coercion were being framed through a human rights perspective, um, or that that's how, you know, transnational feminists were pushing back, was using human rights language. And they came back and they said, well, how can we bring Cairo home? Because women of color have been experiencing human rights abuses right here in the United States for many, many years through coercive sterilization um, and other practices. So they developed a three pillar framework, um, which supports the right to not have unwanted children through access to contraception and abortion, the right to have wanted children, uh, through resisting coerced sterilization um, and unethical medical experimentation, and then the right to raise the children that you do have with the necessary resources and support to do so. And But the thing about reproductive justice is that it was developed in the context of reproductive racism. So it starts with a clear acknowledgement that women of color in the United States have experienced reproductive racism and that the response, the antidote, the solution, if you will, to reproductive racism is reproductive justice. Um, And you cannot have reproductive justice if you don't have a starting point of acknowledging inequality and racism, because that has shaped the historical experiences of women of color In the United States when it comes to reproduction and it is still shaping those experiences today. Um, Another component of you know youth population and climate advocacy has been this language of environmental and climate justice which also um, is really counter to the advocacy approaches that these youth are taking. Environmental justice is a perspective that acknowledges environmental racism and says um, that you need to have movements that really resist the inequitable distribution of environmental benefits and burdens in the places where people live, work, play, pray, and study. And then from there, climate justice grew out of the environmental justice movement. Um, It took those same core principles and applied them to the inequitable ways that low-income communities and communities of color are burdened by the impacts of climate change in the United States. And then beyond that, climate justice in international perspective um, looks at how, for example, indigenous communities, women's communities, young people, um, et cetera, have been differently, and inequitably burdened, and particularly in regions in the global South. Um, And so the thing about it is that all of these justice-based approaches start with a clear and explicit acknowledgement of racism and class-based inequality and oppression. And they were formulated as social movements to resist that injustice. And when you take that language and strip it of all of that social and political context and then say, you can have a social justice or reproductive justice based approach to um, trying to slow population growth for an environmental agenda that is fully counter, completely counter uh, to what the architects and leaders of those movements have been about. For decades.
1: Right. And you, you have this line where you say that it's kind of saying reproductive justice is a way of navigating the racial politics without actually addressing them directly. Right. So it kind of signals, yeah. yes, we're aware of racial politics, but then the conversation kind of stops there, or there's maybe, you know, a sentence or two about, uh, the racial or the history of racism, um, and then kind of moving on.
0: Right. And then in some cases, quite frankly, Uh, Some of the people pushing that approach are very cynical and don't care about racism at all. I sat in meetings with donors um, and meeting private donors, by the way, um, and meetings with people who were senior leaders in uh, nonprofit organizations, and they had a clear perspective that reproductive justice is the literally this was a quote that was given to me. It's the right train to get on. Um, because there was an awareness that social justice and progressive approaches are really popular with youth, that they are popular with a lot of people, um, in this country who, uh, do support environmental goals, um, who do support broader access to family planning. Um, and, And who do support the lawmakers that would put forward these kinds of bills and proposals. So the language around social justice, um, for some, not all, um, but for some, it's very cynical. And it's a harnessing of something that they have observed to be very, very popular, especially among young people. Um, So, yeah.
1: Yeah, the other thing that strikes me as a contradiction, I mean, well, you pointed out in the book, so, uh, of course, the reproductive justice movement pays a lot of attention to race, but it's also about addressing larger social economic frameworks that shape reproduction, whereas this approach of uh, population growth family planning tends to focus on individual choice and responsibility, Right. Which one of the big critiques of international reproductive rights movements and the reproductive justice movement in the U.S. is, you know, choice is not a you know, sufficient kind of framework. Uh, and then the em- emphasis on responsibility of the individual versus the responsibility of the state or of, you know, broader systems. Uh, and I think your concept of the sexual steward really captures the this emphasis on on individual responsibility as the and and particularly responsibility of women and even girls from the global south to kind of solve the climate change problem. Uh, So can you maybe describe a bit what you mean by the sexual steward and what she looks like in the in the imaginations of advocates?
0: Yeah, so sexual steward is a term that I came up with. Um, I wanted to kind of understand who is this figure that these development actors who are writing reports, um, are talking about. So I was reading report after report after report, um, describing this ideal type woman or girl who uses contraception, uh, correctly uh, every single time, um, that she has sex and doesn't want to produce a baby, that this is a woman who, lives somewhere in the global south, who understands or sees her own reproductive capacity as important to the environment, meaning who understands that the children she has and the number of children, the more children she has as something that could be environmentally destructive and therefore needing to be managed uh, through family planning, Um, and that this person uh, utilizes contraception as a responsible act. And um, and when I say responsible, I mean with a sense of responsibility to something or someone greater than just themselves and their family. And this person doesn't exist, right? But they are written about over and over again in these development reports around why contraceptive access needs to be expanded um, as a form of environment or climate stability or sustainability. And so I became really interested in um, how youth activists take on this notion of this responsible, environmentally responsible agent, this woman or girl in the global South, and how they take this up as an image that they then Uh, promote Um, and the interesting thing is the only group of people who has ever been sexual stewards um, have been youth here in the United States particularly um, in the context of that zero population growth or ZPG movement and what I mean by that is you had a group of young people who were sexually active who were environmentally concerned, who were really interested in and and, um, concerned with being environmental stewards, responsibly managing resources around them, and they directly linked that responsible environmental management to their own management of their own reproduction and they made their reproductive decisions accordingly. That type of model doesn't exist anywhere else, but it became encoded in development reports as the ideal development subject um, who could be achieved through universal distribution of contraceptives.
1: Right. And it presents a kind of a quite simple, you know, if you just give them the methods, they're already kind of responsible enough that, you know, it's always framed as she, if she is given this, she will finish her education, she will have less children, you know, she will do it. So again, that kind of um, anticipatory language of we can, we can project how she will act Uh, which then always raises the question of like, what if she doesn't do that? (laughs) You know, what if she decides that she wants to have many children, then what do we do with her? You know, if she doesn't fit that trajectory.
0: And that's the other thing about why this person doesn't exist. Uh, If you're talking about African countries where having larger families is still at least a cultural value, um, in which having more children and a large family is seen as a sign of social and cultural wealth and happiness, it doesn't make sense. Um, it only makes sense in societies that have achieved a certain amount of not only fertility transition towards small families, but a cultural transition toward an ethic of small families. Um, so the idea doesn't work from a cultural perspective. But again, to go back to your earlier question, it also asserts that the responsibility for um, for things like climate change, for things like um, greenhouse gas emissions, for things like fossil fuel extraction and production and burning, for things like deforestation, logging, um, you know, methane release, all of that. But these things are the responsibility of individual women and girls living in poverty in the global south. That makes no sense whatsoever. This is not any individual's reproductive responsibility to fight or solve the problem of climate change. And so to shift that responsibility from these very powerful institutions to relatively very non-powerful individual people um, is a moral and ethical problem, I would argue.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it also ignores the context of sexual violence or inequalities that shape reproduction. And, and also people's just, I mean, we know reproduction is more complicated than that, right? That, even people who are highly motivated not to have children don't use contraception perfectly. So all of that is kind of lost. Now, I guess, you know, people in, in the book and in general, of course, will make this argument that, well, this is just strategic, right? We know this woman doesn't exist. We know it's a simplistic framework, but that's what gets donors interested and that's what gets or gets people in the door, right, into some of these mm-hmm. exhibitions that you study. So I wonder what you would say to that. I mean, why does this language matter? Uh hmm. It is
0: strategic. So those that would say that are absolutely right. Um, and I have had conversations including a very long email exchange um, with a member of the you know population NGO community um, who read the book and who had very positive things to say about it, but who ultimately told me that I am an idealist <laughs> and that he is uh, his framing was a sausage maker, but basically what he was saying is that, He's a realist who's working with real politics in Washington and trying to get policy solutions out of these really challenging and complex and non-ideal circumstances and debates. So is it just a strategic approach? One could argue, yes, that it is. However, um, strategic approaches have real effects, real impacts on human beings' lives. I co-authored an article with a colleague that came out last year about a community, a coastal community in Madagascar, in which um, an environmental nonprofit organization that does marine management in a coastal community, they provide health care at a local clinic. Um, And my collaborator, did on-the-ground research and discovered that, in fact, that healthcare is entirely the provision of contraceptives, that it is not comprehensive uh, health care, um, that it's not even comprehensive reproductive health care. They are treating sexually transmitted infections, but they are not providing the basics of maternal and child health, um, and that they are really focusing on provision of contraceptives. And the thing about it is I am certainly not against, um, you know, environmental organizations that branch into other areas and other forms of service provision. But, for example, if an environmental organization operates a reproductive health clinic and they don't provide prenatal care, if they don't provide um, STD prevention and treatment If they don't provide, for example, uh, fertility care, because one of the most significant impacts of untreated sexually transmitted infections is infertility. And we know that infertility is increasing all over the world. Obviously, treating infertility is counter to the aims of an organization that would want to reduce the number of people in a population. But my point being, you're not providing comprehensive reproductive health services if you are focused very narrowly on one small aspect, which is pregnancy prevention through contraception. And that is the challenge.
1: Yeah. And I mean, we've also seen in the past how that apocalyptic language and fear can then lead to really blatantly coercive policies, right? And, um, and, and it was interesting to me in reading it, you know, because a lot of them say, well, no, we're focused on voluntary, we don't, we don't promote coercion. But if you think in the past, I mean, that's also what a lot of the actors in the past said, we were focused on voluntary. But then these points of crisis happen, and they push more aggressive policies because of that fear narrative that, that can kind of slip into it. So I think uh, your book is really important to, to provide this kind of cautionary tale. Right, as you put it, of, of the problems of this narrative and where it might lead us or is already leading us, as you point out, in, in some cases to these really narrow narrow programs. Um, so I wanted to just close, I guess, we've talked for quite a while now, um, by asking you what you're working on now, where you're where you're headed.
0: Yeah, so right now I'm actually working on my second book, Um, It's on a similar topic, but it takes it to a completely different scale. Now I am actually interested in the individual. So what I'm looking at now is um, the research around environmental and specifically climate-based emotions. So studying climate anxiety, climate depression, climate grief, uh, and related kinds of negative emotions. And how these emotions impact young people's desires and plans around becoming parents. And what I'm finding, I in this project, I'm focusing on young people between the ages of 22 and 35. Um, in their reproductive years, during those times when they're actively making these kinds of decisions, more so toward 35, less so toward 23. 23- Twenty-two. although for some, they are making those plans at that time. And I'm looking at um, how we need to think about climate related emotions, and climate related mental health impacts differently. um, Because they really are shaping how people are thinking, young people in particular, how they're thinking about the future how they're thinking about their own legacy or what kind of legacy they could leave in a future and specifically how that could, could not should, or should not be a human legacy. Um, And these are concerns that are quite different from the Neo Malthusian concerns that I explored in on infertile ground. That doesn't mean that none of the young people I'm studying that none of them express Neo-Malthusian views because some of them do. Um, But largely, this is more so about a personal moral landscape that is informed by deep, deep fear of where we are headed as a planet um, and whether future generations will be able to not only survive but thrive in the face of a climate crisis. Um, and where where parenting or bringing children into the world fits into that. So um, it's quite a project. I'm enjoying writing it, but it's it, when I say it's quite a project, it's making me really grapple deeply with my own climate fears and anxieties, my own thoughts around, you know, parenting or not parenting and all of that. It has really made me, sort of delve into and rethink my own ethical approaches to a lot of things and really in particular what I'm most concerned with in that book is how do we create the future that we want to live into Um, it's a question I ask everyone who I interview it's a question I keep asking myself as I'm researching and writing it and um, I'm not sure how I'm going to answer it but I'm, I'm finding out and it's I'm enjoying the process
1: Oh, that's great! As someone who also has some climate anxiety, <laughs> I look forward to to reading that and and also, you know, reading ways that we can handle and deal with that anxiety without falling back on these really simplistic narratives uh, that yeah. that have their appeal in this simplicity, but then maybe end up preventing us from solving it because they they miss out, they leave out so much. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, uh, thanks so much, Jade, uh, for coming in and discussing your book. It's it's really great. And I think it has a lot to tell, not just for other academics, but also for people in the development community, environmentalist community, uh, and youth advocates more broadly.
0: Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. And, I, you know, I, I just, my hope is that for people who read the book to really begin to think much more critically about how they've been taught about this link between population and the environment um, and what has been behind that messaging and those narratives and to really ask some harder questions um, around, you know, what they actually believe solutions to environmental problems can be, should be, and are. And I think that anyone who really thinks very critically would understand that population control has never been a solution. It's not a solution now, and it will not be a solution in the future.
1: Perfect. (laughs) Thank you so much, Jade. Uh, Take care. You too.